Well, I feel like Simeon of old. I feel like just saying to the Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace, for my ears have heard of the salvation of the Lord, and he is good. He is good. Amen, amen. Thank you for leading a clap offering to Jesus this morning, Pastor Kelvin. It is fitting and right, appropriate for us to lift up our praises to God. What an epic morning this has been already, and I thank God that we are here together in his presence, in the congregation, praising the Lord. Our Father and our God, we now thank you for your every blessing to us. You are a great God. We love you. Uh, We do our best to express to you how much we adore you and want to lift up your name. We know, Father, it is... Feeble by comparison to the, glo- the splendor of your glory, but Father, you have told us that it pleases you, that uh, when the congregation enthrones you in praise, that uh, it brings honor and glory to you. And we realize, Lord, that when we come together like this, we, We become to the angels a witness and testimony to your greatness and embarrass the demons at the same time. And we like to do that. So Lord, thank you for this great opportunity to praise you. And we ask now, as we peer into the majesty of your written revelation, the record of the greatness of our God, the love letter from God, the God of glory to us. Oh God, I pray this morning that our hearts will be stirred within us like like the men who on the road to Emmaus walking with Jesus. Lord, I pray that that, um, the majesty of your word will grip our hearts afresh and will give us great confidence in these days of attack uh, uh, toward all things holy and sacred that we might be a people to the praise of your glory I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, you know, King David wrote one of the great treaties about the scriptures in Psalm 119. In fact, it's as if he started to write and then couldn't stop writing. He went on and on and on for, a, for 176 verses, and I'm sure he could have kept going. But the Spirit of God said, that's enough. Uh, that'll uh, encapsulate this chapter the way I want it. But it was, it's a phenomenal record of the scriptures. And for those of you who are reading the book of Romans diligently, may I suggest to you that a great assignment this week as an interruption to your book on Romans is read Psalm 119, 176 verses. It will reestablish the glory of the word of God in your life and reposition it where it ought to be. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Hopefully I can stop uh, somewhere, otherwise we'll be here reading a long time. But it starts this way, blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame. When I consider all your commands, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Well, we'll stop there for now. You read the rest of it. It's uh, just an amazing, as I said, an amazing treatise. And there isn't a better or a finer, finer uh, work written on the word of God than in Psalm 119. Well, if you're like me and uh, have encountered friends like I've encountered or people like I've encountered, you have spent some of your time in your life defending the veracity of the Word of God. And uh, you've heard voices around you say things like, well, it's old or it's just a bunch of made-up stories or it conflicts with science or it conflicts with history or it's filled with internal contradictions. You've perhaps heard all of that, blah, 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 all those kinds of things that are waged against the scriptures, against the word of God. And um, so today we want to look at the second part of this apologetic of the, the scriptures. We looked last week at um, where the Bible comes from, and today we're going to look at the, the aspect of trusting the Bible. But um, the danger in an exercise like this is that we might get so caught up in evidence that we might forget that the Bible is an invitation. The Bible is an invitation from the living God to have a personal relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And so I hope we never get um, to the place where this becomes an intellectual exercise for us or our apologetic studies uh, cause us to lose uh, track of the fact that this is the living Word of God, this is His love letter to us, this is an invitation by God to, uh, to enjoy a relationship with him. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who uh, was no follower of Christianity, but was enamored by Christianity, and in particular was not uh, enamored by Christians, which is a sad commentary, wrote this about the Bible. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces. Turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. He struggled with the veracity of Christianity because he witnessed in the lives of Christians such a hypocrisy between what we claim to believe and how we lived. But we must remember that uh, the Word of God, as John the eyewitness, John the Gospel writer said, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, John 20, verse 31. And so we want to look today at this powerful tool in our hands, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. The critics, in truth, are simply looking to release themselves from spiritual responsibility and moral accountability. That's why the Bible is attacked so vigorously. And what's at stake? Why do we talk about an apologetic for the scriptures? I mean, what's at stake? What, what really matters here? And the simple truth is that in our world, um, everything is either relative or there is actually revealed truth. Uh, that's what's at stake. Our, how are we going to live? How are we going to, to, uh, to know how to uh, 
respond to the things of the world. It's either all relative or there is, in fact, revealed truth. And I want to share with you today, I, I have eight um, proofs that I want to share with you today, but I think we're only going to get through six, and I'll share two more with you tonight. That is if we run in the same pattern as we ran in the first service. And so I want to dig right in this morning, and I simply want to work through these proofs that um, uh, should, should bring encouragement to your heart and, uh, and bring confidence. I mean, truthfully, if you know the Lord as your own Savior, and you know the Word of God, and you've peered into the Word of God, none of these proofs are really necessary to you. I, I mean, you know already, uh, you have great confidence already in the veracity of God's Word, but... But we are inundated regularly by people who think they're really intelligent and try to come after what we believe. And it just stands to reason that, that there, there, it makes sense that we ought to know something about the things that will come our way and, and the, the real truth about how strong uh, the Bible really is in terms of ancient religious documents. Can I tell you this, that the very first proof, and, and uh, really in, in many ways the supreme apologetic, is you and me. It, it is we who know the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened in Mahatma Gandhi's life was he didn't seem to happen upon the right Christians. We're the apologetic. We're the supreme apologetic. The, the truth of God's work in our lives. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2 this, You yourselves are our letter. Written on our hearts, known and read of all men. And then he goes on in the next verse to say this. You show that you are the letter from Christ. The result of our ministry. The Bible itself, the Apostle Paul himself, really declares this. The power of example is the supreme apologetic for the scriptures. Regularly, when people come our way and criticize the Bible, there's a really key question to turn and, an, and ask them. And it is this, to ask them, do you understand the message of the Bible? Has anyone ever explained to you the message of the Bible? Regularly, they've heard bits and pieces and criticism handed down depending on their educational level and various kinds of things, depending on their, their, their reading and all of that. But the, the real important question, the starting question, rather than defend the veracity of the Bible, is to start with the question, do you really understand the message of the Bible? Invariably, they'll say no. That's the real opportunity. That's the, that's the moment to, to have a, a conversation with someone. To show them. Most people have no starting point. They haven't even considered this as an important question. They haven't even considered the fact that this book has any relevance to their lives. And uh, Blaise Pascal said this, Make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show that it is. Uh, Jesus said it better, I think, when he said, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And praise your Father who is in heaven. I, I shared this with you last week. That in, in the realm of apologetics, we don't have a starting point unless people are willing to consider the plausibility, at least, of our argument. In other words, we're not going to get anywhere with credibility until we have first established plausibility. And you and I are the plausibility. Our lives should reflect to other people that, you know what? 
It might just be possible that there is a God. It might just be possible that he has a son. It might be possible that the word of God has something to offer me because I can see that it has something really relevant to offer you. So I commend to you first yourself. People are actually changed by reading and obeying this book. That's a good amen moment. Is it happening in your lives? You, can, you, you are being changed by God's word. Now, there's a second uh, proof that I want to look at with you, and that, that is this, that this is not just another ancient religious writing among so many others. The uh, uniqueness to the Bible is this, the power of eyewitness. The power of eyewitness. Uh, you... We, we need to know that um, the authors, the, the various writers led by the Spirit of God to, to record the God-breathed uh, um, uh, scriptures uh, were Jews. Jews who, in fact, held themselves to the Ten Commandments. We would have to believe, if we don't believe the Bible is true, we would have to believe that these authors would purposely break one of the commandments and bear false witness. It's a pretty serious matter for a Jew to knowingly break a commandment. And we'd have to assume that all 40 of them determined that it would be a good idea to bear false witness. It was a serious sin. It is a serious sin. Now, we also need to understand that eyewitness was and still is among the very key Ways evidence, the credibility of evidence is put forth. In the British legal system, I'm not sure if you know that, and I presume that uh, there's a lawyers here they can correct me, but I presume that the Canadian legal system is, is copied from the British legal system. In the British legal system, there are five, uh, five major sources of evidence. An eyewitness is the number one source of evidence, followed by hearsay, uh, documents, things, and uh, circumstances. Eyewitness is a powerful, powerful source of credibility. And I hope we've paid attention to the fact, as I shared with you last week, this book is compiled by multiple eyewitnesses, 40 to be exact, with a continuity of theology, a continuity of the message and unfolding of the revelation of Jesus Christ over 1,500 years, the impossibility of personal collaboration. It is unparalleled because none of the other ancient uh, religious writings or documents have multiple eyewitnesses. The Quran has one eyewitness or alleged eyewitness, Muhammad. The Book of Mormon has one eyewitness, allegedly, Joseph Smith. I'll pronounce, I'll butcher the pronunciation of this, but the major, or a, the major Chinese religious document, the Tao Te Ching, is one eyewitness, Laozi. The Bhagavad Gita, the Hindus' ancient writings, have one eyewitness, the Asavita, the guru. No other of the world's ancient Religious documents have multiple eyewitnesses. This is unmatched. 
In fact, uh, the writers of Scripture went to great pains to talk about the reality of eyewitness. In John, John, uh, 1 John 3, 1, he writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And then the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas or Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why did Paul mention that in his letter? Quite simply, he was validating his writings. He was saying, listen, brothers and sisters, what I am telling you in Corinth, what I am telling you in Ephesus, what I am telling you in, in, in Berea, wherever, what I am telling you is there are multitudes of eyewitnesses who have seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of them are still around to corroborate what I'm saying. In fact, as he went from church to church, I'm sure he was able to say, and they would stand up and say, yes, I saw the living Christ. Yes, I saw. The woman back there stood up and said, I saw the living Christ with my own eyes. It were eyewitness accounts. This was not hidden. This was not in the imagination of, of, of a certain writer. This was crazy. Uh, was corroborated by eyewitness accounts. And then in the book of Mark, Mark himself in the gospel writes concerning the individual who carried the cross for a part way for Jesus, the Simon of Cyrene. He says this, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, what writer in his right mind, if he were telling a lie, would be that specific? He could have just said a certain man, I can't remember his name, and I certainly can't remember any of his family members. But rather, he actually articulates, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. We're led to believe that it's quite possible that in the early church, that Alexander and Rufus came to faith in Christ. And they were known within the Christian community. You know Alexander and Rufus. Go ask them. Go ask them if their dad carried the cross. Go ask them. These were eyewitnesses, eyewitness realities. Uh, they, they, you were able to, to check and verify if, if what the writers were saying was true. It's a powerful, powerful proof. And there's the issue, of course, of martyrdom. Many of these eyewitnesses gave their lives for this truth. Now you say, wait a second, there's lots of martyrs. There's martyrs giving up their lives for uh, documents that are, uh, religious documents that are quite spurious. Yes, that's true. There are lots of people giving up their lives for something they believe in. But what we are led to believe, if the Bible is not true, is that these eyewitnesses gave up their lives for something they knew wasn't true. That changes the whole formula. They gave up their lives because they were eyewitnesses. And they knew Christ was alive. They knew this was true. The third proof that I want to share with you this morning is the power of prophetic fulfillment. Now, you need to know, of course, that the key apologetic 
is Jesus himself. I mean, if Jesus validates the scriptures, that's enough for me. If Jesus says it, I believe it, that settles it kind of thing, right? But I think we should hear from his own words and listen to him. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with a couple of individuals. And in 24, Luke 24, verse 25, he says to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now, now the Son of God is putting his stamp of endorsement on the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. <clears throat> well, I want to share with you, um, for instance, uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. That great messianic prophecy written by Isaiah seven centuries before the crucifixion event. And in that prophecy, there are at least eight different simultaneous events that happened that were prophesied. In that particular text... The prophet Isaiah talks about the fact that the Messiah will suffer sinlessly, silently. He'll be a substitute. He'll be scourged. He'll be pierced through. He'll be cut off. He'll be placed in a rich man's tomb. He'll be lifted up and exalted after death. Now, Jesus has already, in that road to Emmaus experience, has already endorsed this prophecy of Isaiah, but... For those of you who are interested in mathematical probability and statistics, anybody out there interested in, in math and statistics and probabilities? All right, I'm glad a couple of you raised your hand or I would have to just move on. Can I just say in the first service there was a more rousing interest? <laughs> so that makes my work uh, harder for me here. Let me just tell you something about probability and statistics. I think this will wow you. I'm going to give you time at the very end of this to go, ooh, all right? So get ready. Get ready. The probability of eight things predicted for one person to occur simultaneously, okay, is one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's good. That's good, but that's not the wow factor yet. That's, not the, that, that's good. You got a good warm-up going. According to Aldersheim, who is an Old Testament scholar, there are 456 prophecies of Jesus. Now, let me try to put this into some mathematical perspective for you. The probability that just 48 prophecies, okay, just 48 prophecies, landing on one person is one in ten with, too bad you weren't at the drums, one in ten with 157 zeros behind it. Okay. All right, you're getting good. Now that's just 48 prophecies. Statist statisticians tell us that once you go past 1 in 10 with 50 zeros, 
the probability of that particular thing happening is virtually impossible. We've already gone by it. We already went to 10 with 157 zeros in just 48 prophecies. Now you're all thinking, what could it possibly be for 456 prophecies? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the math to that one. But I'm assuming it will be a number that may not be possible to record. So a thinking mind has to realize that the possibility of 456 prophecies being accurately depicted and fulfilled is impossible outside of God. In fact, so dramatic are these prophecies and the prophecies of the Old Testament is that, in fact, the critics regularly try to redate the Old Testament scriptures. They try to make the writing contemporaneous with the events so they can explain away the predictive nature of prophecy. Uh, no book is more attacked than the book of Daniel. So precise is the history of Daniel that the critics of the scriptures are unwilling to concede that Daniel was written in, the, in 500 B.C. So they've tried to update it to the 200 B.C. range. Because Daniel's prophecy of, uh, of the uh, overthrow of the ancient Near East by Babylon and by Persia and by Greece and by Rome is, is unparalleled in, in, in prophetic writings. The problem is for the critics that regularly biblical archaeologists are continuing to find copies of the scriptures, writings that are dated prior to even dates they assumed were possible. We'll look at that in a few moments. In fact, I want to take you to the fourth uh, proof. How reliable is the transmission of the truth recorded um, getting accurately to us? Um, you need to know that we have no originals. Uh, we, we have no originals of the Old Testament. We have no originals of the New Testament. I, I hope that doesn't throw you in any possible way in terms of faith. There are, there are many copies, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. We have no originals. And I'm convinced there's a good reason why we don't have originals. In fact, we don't have an original of the cross of Calvary. We don't, we don't have the ark, notwithstanding the claims of Mount Ararat. Uh, we don't have... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And we don't have any original New Test Old Testament writings. We don't have any original New Testament writings. In spite of the fact that um, I've seen the uh, rod of Aaron in Turkey. Nah, it wasn't really the rod of Aaron in Turkey. I've seen a piece of the skull of the Apostle Paul in Turkey. It's not really the... And why are... Why has it... Has God not permitted or not allowed or seems that there are no real remaining artifacts? Wouldn't it be because we would probably venerate them? Wouldn't we create whole denominations around the Noah's Ark and around the Ark of the Covenant and around the index finger of Timothy. I mean, wouldn't that be the way it would be? So we have no originals. 
But what we have to ask ourselves and what we have to be able to defend in terms of apologetics is how good are the copies that we have. And, and so I want to share with you this morning uh, some realities about copies. The power of proximity in copies. Two credibility issues are always at stake. The quantity of available documents and the distance between the time of their writing and the date of the copies. Now stay, stay with me on this. I've got a chart for you. Um, the chart is uh, assembled by Dr. Uh, David Wallace of Dallas Theological Seminary, who's in fact the director of the study of New Testament manuscripts. And what he has formulated here is a comparison of extant historical documents. And I want to walk you through this. I, I, I think you'll find this fascinating, and I think it will really strengthen your confidence in God's Word. Um, on, the one, on the first column is a, a listing of various histories. The next column is the oldest known manuscripts that are recorded of those copies of those histories. That's what MSS is, manuscripts. And then in the third column is the number that are still surviving of those histories. And so we have, as we work our way down, we, we have Titus, Livius, Patavinus, or as his friends called him, Livy. And uh, he wrote the first history of Rome in 59 BC to AD 17. The earliest copies that we have of his writings are in the 4th century, or about 500 years later. In 400 years later. Then we have Publius Cornelius Tacitus, who was a Roman senator in AD 56 to 120. By the way, he writes in his history of Rome of the execution of one named Jesus by Pontius Pilate. We have, in fact, historic secular documents um, uh, giving credibility to the history of Jesus. Also, he talks in his writings about the... the um, early Christianity. We don't have anything of him till the ninth century, and all we have in terms of the number of copies surviving is three. We have an Algerian by the name of Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, AD 69 through 140. He writes of the uh, problems in Jerusalem in 49 AD, which is likely a reference to the uh, great persecution that came upon the Christians. We have his documents, they're ninth century as well, and we have 200 plus of those documents. We have next a Greek by the name of uh, Thucydides, um, Thucydides, uh, 460 to 400 BC, and we have him in the first century, and we have 20 copies, again, 500 years span. Then we have the, the great Greek and first great nar narrative historian, Herodotus, 484 to 425 BC, again, the earliest copies we have are first century, again, about 500 years apart, and 75 copies of that. Then we get to the New Testament. The New Testament was written in the... Uh, Time frame, so Wallace says between 80, 60 to 90. I might take that uh, down to more 50, but who am I? And he's the doctor. So, um, because the Apostle Paul was clearly writing in the uh, realm of the 50s. But uh, nevertheless, um, I would say 50 to 90. We have Mark, Luke, Matthew, John. And look at the date of the first copies that we have. 100 to 150 A.D. Do you realize that the, the distance is 10 to 50, only 10 to 50 years? Now, let me try and put this in perspective. The critics of the Bible endorse all of the historians that are recorded in this chart as, and their documents as credible. 
How much more credibility should they be granting to the New Testament scriptures when the copy, the, 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 in fact, many who were, who were eyewitnesses to the truth were still alive to read the copies that were written of the New Testament. Now, I want you to look at the sheer volume of the numbers of manuscripts surviving of the New Testament scriptures. 5,700 Greek manuscripts alone. 10,000 Latin manuscripts. One million citations of scripture from the early church fathers. And that's not to mention the, the Coptic copies, the, the Syriac, the Armenian, the, the Gothic, the Georgian, the uh, Arabic. The, the Bible in terms of copies is unparalleled in terms of a historic document as it compares to other writings in the world. In fact, in 1986, which is a number of years ago, archaeologists found an Old Testament text dated 600 B.C., written literally soon after the events. So in other words, there were already copies being made of the original documents at a time earlier than the critics of the Old Testament scriptures even believe the originals are written. Is that clear? Is that a little weird? Okay, so your critics are saying... Uh, we don't believe any of the Old Testament scriptures were written any sooner than 200 B.C., and some of them were contemporaneous with the, the New Testament community. I'm telling you that archaeologists have already found copies of the Old Testament scriptures that are, are dated 600 B.C. Now, um, that's, what's important about that is to recognize that these texts... Uh, by the way, if you know of he Hebrew scribes and how they copied texts, they copied the text very meticulously. In fact, they counted letters, they counted words, they counted lines, and if there was a single error, the whole thing was destroyed. And um, in 1947, with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a comparison made between an Israel scroll, uh, an Isaiah scroll copy dated 100 B.C. and a Masoretic copy of 950, uh, nine, around 935 A.D., and they were virtually identical. Now, let me put this in perspective for you. This is your Bible. This is your Bible. It has a Hebrew section, which is your Old Testament text, and it has a Greek section, which is your New Testament text. This text of the Old Testament that you have, the copies that, uh, that, that uh, tr are translated into your uh, English translation were um, established in around 900 AD. But with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this text has been moved a thousand years earlier. And what's fascinating about all of this is that the copy of Isaiah that was found a thousand years before the copy that your translations come from was impeccably identical. Over 1,000 years of copying, it was impeccably carried to 900 AD. In fact, one of the... Um, I'll leave these here in case you're interested in looking at your languages. In fact, one of these... One of these... Um, Archaeologists, a Hebrew scholar by the name of Miller Burroughs, wrote this about the transmission of this text. 
And he said, with respect to the transmission perfection, and these are his words, it's a matter of wonder. And this is not a God, this is not a, a believer in Christ. It's a matter of wonder. The fact is, this this transmission of the scriptures, we can be very extremely confident that what we have is the word of God, handed down, preserved by God himself. Let me take you to the fifth, um, the fifth proof. Another immense um, distinction uh, between the holy scriptures and other so-called holy books is the Bible is embedded in history itself. The, the biblical writers... Uh, painstakingly entrenched the story, the revelation of God in history. From the very beginning, right through the the text, it is entrenched with historic record, with with, uh, historic references that can be checked and verified. It it doesn't have the, the feel of legend or myth whereby history is not recorded, names are not recorded, time is not recorded. No, no, this is an accurate and detailed record that can be checked and cross-checked against historic records. Now, let let me just give you an example of the power of corroborating historic evidence. This is just a mere fraction of of what is available for us. Uh, Found in Luxor, Egypt, is the uh, Merneptah Stele which is a, a wall relief that uh, is now displayed in a museum in Luxor, Egypt. You, you need to know that for many, in, in terms of critics of the Old Testament, critics of the Old Testament scriptures, there was a general uh, sense in, in the uh, Old, uh, Old Testament critical scholarship that the nation of Israel did not exist as a power as the Bible has recorded it. But in this particular finding, this uh, Merneptah stele is uh, dated 12, as you can see, 1,207 B.C. It's in Egyptian hieroglyphics. And there is a phrase in that, re- in that historic relief of a uh, uh, dust-up between Egypt and Israel. And it says in there, Israel is laid waste. Now what this says to us is that there is a document that gives credence to the fact that Israel was already a known international power 3,000 years ago, as the scriptures already declare. As we move on, we'll realize that um, also critics of the Old Testament scriptures did not believe that David, King David, actually existed. That in fact he was just a mythological figure that was made by Israel that they might have some sort of ancient champion. Well, in uh, 1993, there was an inscription that was found dated from the 9th century B.C. that in fact articulated these words, House of David and King of Israel. So it's very hard for critics who claim there was no David to in fact have discovered now a writing dated one century after David existed declaring him to be a reality. Uh, there's, there's some more interesting things that we can look at. The dedication stone of Abila and the Licinius of Luke 3.1. Uh, if, you, if you've got your Bibles, quickly look at Luke 3.1. I want to show you something there. Luke, in particular, was uh, very dedicated to historic facts and making sure that the stories of Jesus were entrenched within political and history, historic reality. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 1... Uh, Luke records this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, first of all, we have to stop and pause for a second and recognize that what writer in their right mind would get this detailed about the political structure of the, of the time he was writing and, 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 uh, and lie about it and, and make up stories about it. But nevertheless, critics for centuries had been uh, bemoaning the uh, reference to Licinius, uh, the Tetrarch, claiming that there was no such thing as, as Licinius the Tetrarch living at that era because the only Licinius that was recorded in history was King Licinius, who was murdered by Mark Antony because Cleopatra didn't like him in 36 BC. And so critics of the New Testament were proposing the idea that, aha, Luke was mixing up this Licinius with that Licinius who was dead long before Christ ever came on the scene. Until biblical archaeologists found the stone of, at Abila, which is just north of Damascus, and it's a plaque. And in that plaque... It says this, to one Nymphaeus, sorry, Nymphaeus, freeman of Licinius, the Tetrarch. And here's the date, A.D. 14 to 29, the exact time of Luke's record of the life and times of Christ. One more, the Stone of Delphi. I see my Temple of Apollo's already there. Uh, many of you came on a journey which we took to Corinth, and that's in, in Corinth and, and the uh, Temple to Apollo. At the base of that temple was discovered the Stone of Delphi. And on that stone was the inscription, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. That's not so landmark, other than the fact that if you were to look in Acts 18, 12, and 14, you will realize that the Apostle Paul refers historically, to this Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And what that does for us is not only corroborates that Paul was writing accurate history, but that we can date the time Paul was actually in Corinth as 51 AD, which is why I said that the New Testament scriptures were being written in the, in the 50 AD from what I can, I can tell from the scriptures. So there we have uh, just a few powerful things. Well, tonight... I want to get to one more, but tonight, uh, I'm going to invite you to come back. Even if you're not in a discipling community, come on back. Um, I want to share uh, the power of embarrassing details with you. I want to share the power of prediscovered scientific accuracies. And I want to talk about uh, contradictions within the scriptures. So those are worth hearing tonight if you come on back. And hey, you can be part of a, uh, you can sit in one of the DCs and and see what it's like. And and I uh, I think you'll love it. So let me just share with you one last uh, uh, proof this morning and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for today and, and that's the power of God's word I don't want to leave without getting to the, the real punchline there's all of this educational stuff and discoveries, archaeological discovery and all of that is really important but here's the truth God's word is powerful it's the power of God's word over against anything else that you will ever pick up and read any other ancient document, any other book you will ever read, it's the power of God's word. Why? Because it has the power to judge our thoughts and our very attitudes. 
It, regularly, I feel like when I'm reading the Bible, God's like, are you reading my email? Did you, did you walk with me this week? Did you know, did you, were you with me on that interaction that I had with that individual? Because it's like as if God is constantly from his word speaking out to you, speaking out to your thoughts and your attitude. Before it even, before it even hits you, you realize, wait a second, that's exactly me. That is exactly what I was thinking. How did God know? I've had many of you come to me and say the very same thing about sermons. When we exegete a sermon and we pre- present it, and, and you come to me and say, were you, were you with me this week? Did you see what was happening? No, it's God's word. It's powerful. God knows your thoughts. God knows the attitude of your heart. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts right through the bone to the marrow. And it's, it is the seed of God that God uses to produce new birth. You know, it says in the word of God in Romans 10, 17, that saving faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. There is no other way to come to know Christ but by his word. That's where it comes from. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without reading the word of God, you can't gain faith. It's impossible to please God without reading his word. Compared to other ancient religious writings, the Bible has been exhaustively scrutinized. It's been poked. It's been prodded by destructive agendas. And continues to emerge powerfully intact. For the life of me, I've been waiting for when Time Magazine or National Geographic is going to do a critique on the Quran. When are they going to poke and prod and scrutinize that book? Like they have the Bible over all of these years. Will it stand up? Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Here's the great tragedy of all these critics. They risk missing out on the eternal destiny message that's found in the word of God. They miss out on on the powerful, transforming, life-transforming truth that is found herein about a relationship with Jesus Christ that can change your whole life and your whole eternity. That's what's at risk here. As Mark Twain said, most people are bothered by the passages in scripture which they cannot understand. The scripture which troubles me most is the scripture I do understand. Isn't that so true? Well, let me just say to you that Calvary Baptist Church is founded as a biblical-centric church. That's who we are. That's what the Protestant denomination is about. We are Christ-centered, and we are biblical-centric. And the Westminster Confession on the Scriptures writes this, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God, God breathed, and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. That's how Calvary Church operates. We don't sit around and muse and ideas about men when you come to us and ask us questions about church practice and faith and all of that we don't come to counsel and decide what we'll do some sort of fanciful imagination it's what does the bible say about these things it is our final arbiter of all faith and practice that's how calvary baptist church rolls it's who we are our father and our god we thank you this morning for your incredible patience with uh, the feeble human minds. And Lord, how patient you are with those who attack your word. And yet, Lord, out of your grace, each one of us were really at one point attackers of your word. We lived as rebels against your truth. 
But how patient you are with us, O oh God. How gracious you've been to us. You've brought us and drawn our hearts to consider the plausibility of the truth and then to be overwhelmed by the reality of the truth that has changed our lives forever. Oh God, we praise you and we thank you. And we all offer all of our thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus Christ who has made our salvation possible by his great sacrifice. It's his name we pray, amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, was invited to speak evangelistically at the Great Crystal Palace in southern uh, London, England. It had been uh, just constructed about six years before in 1851 for the Great World Exhibition. An immense place, an amazing place, a glass structure uh, well ahead of its time. That's why it was called the Crystal Palace. And um, in fact, uh, it was uh, about a quarter of a mile long and 128 feet high. It was just an immense structure. And so he went in uh, the day before uh, to test the acoustics where he would be speaking the next day. And so he stood in this hollow, massive building and spoke this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he left the building. What he didn't realize is that there were two construction workers in the rafters who heard him. And one of the construction workers went home that night and his heart was so pricked by the word of God that he gave his life to Jesus Christ even before the evangelist evangelist preached his sermon and the next day he spoke to 20 over 23,000 people many of whom turned to Christ isn't that amazing the power of God's words behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world what a powerful verse that is oh God we thank you this morning we thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who's taken away our sins, who invites us into a relationship with the living God forever. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through Christ Jesus, the very image of God, very God himself. And then the written revelation of Jesus Christ, handed down, preserved through the ages, truth that divides our bone from the marrow, our thoughts and our attitudes, the very word of God. Oh God, I pray that our confidence in your word would not be founded in intellectual gymnastics, but rather that our confidence in your word would be found in the life experience of its transforming work personally, oh God. And may we live it out for all to see that what they consider incredible could become plausible, could become embraced by them, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.